you're listening to the Radical Traditional Feminist Podcast. This is the final part of our conversation about mental health in the church. In the, in the time that we have left, I want to touch on that, that very sensitive subject of suicide. We all know people who've been touched by suicide. And I've seen the way that Christians talk about suicide in social media. This is not the best, social media is not the best place to go when somebody is talking about suicide because all the worst comes out. So, and it, it, is, it is clear that even people in their church experience suicide. So what do we do with that? How do we counsel people who are experiencing suicidal ideation? How do we counsel the survivors, people who survive suicide attempts, the family members and friends who are left behind after a successful suicide attempt? How do we care for and love people in those situations? Um, you know, my own experience, um, my father ended his life almost four years ago. And one of the first people we, um, reached out to, we have a deep, deep, long relationship with, um, and I was raised Catholic and, um, our friend who I reached out to is now pastor was also raised Catholic. And he knew immediately when I told him the thing to say to me is, your father was a believer. He is not in hell. Like Catholic, the Catholic church wants you to believe right now. He says, I know what your brain is doing and tell your brain it's wrong. And mm-hmm. I said, that's not why I called you, but I needed that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. I, th- I think the fellowship that's built around um, the people in your church community is so vital when these, you know, when somebody you're friends with in your church loses somebody to suicide. Um, I think reminding them that, um, you know, your loved one is not burning eternally, that that is not what needs to be said. You know, they need the same thing anybody needs when they're struggling. They need to be checked in on. They need to be um, cared for. They need to be loved on. They need meals. They need reasons to get out of bed. Um, and so while it's, while it's an incredibly complex and difficult problem, the solution to how to take care of somebody who's dealing with suicide can be as simple as love your neighbor as you love yourself. Mm. And truly it doesn't matter what you yourself might believe or think that the scriptures say about it you need to love your neighbor as yourself. So keep your opinions to yourself and bring a dinner. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That temptation to want to say something to make it better. Hold off on that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think too, thinking about the, from the very front end, if we want people to be open when they're, in the depths of that kind of struggle that they're actually contemplating suicide, 
there's no way we're going to hear about that from them if there's not a normalization of discussing how everyone's mental health is doing on a regular yes. basis. Yes. Um, if you're in, um, and I've, I've seen this example just as a sort of a parallel in, um, in broken marriages. So if there's not a regular discussion where people acknowledge, even if it's in just in a women's group or just in a men's group, if people don't ever talk about or acknowledge like marriage is hard right now, or things are a little rough on this area, or I think we really need to work on this. Um, who's ever going to share when they're contemplating divorce? And so what usually happens is everything seems fine from the outside and then poof, it's gone. And no one had a chance to intervene or help or support people who were really going through something terrible, but um, didn't feel that they could share. Um, and so having seen that happen multiple times with marriage, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, I, I'm trying to think of how the church can be more sensitive to just how people are doing in areas that are really important, but people don't feel immediately comfortable sharing about. And I think mental health certainly falls within that category um, as something people, they need to see an example that it's okay and good to be sharing about those kinds of hard, hard questions, waking up in the morning and saying, why am I even here? Mm. Um, we need to be a uh, a safe place for someone to talk about how they're doing so that we can be a supportive environment. Yes. And oddly enough, years ago, I, when I realized that I was struggling with these very big emotions, it, you know, I, somehow it occurred to me that the best way to deal with this is to be honest about it. Yes. And I was just going to say that. <laughs> say it out loud in a group and mm -hmm. If people are weirded out by it, well, this is practice for them to to learn that this is actually normal and okay to talk about. Right. I've been doing that for years. And Nikki, that's how I connected with you. We were, I think it was like a, a study for Advent or something. Yep. And I was definitely struggling. And, you know, it's like, what can we pray for you about? I'm like, all right, here's the deal. I've been a mess for months, still dealing with my the loss of my sister. You know, I laid it all out there and everybody's like, okay, you know, writing furiously. And afterwards you came up to me and you're like, I know exactly what you're going through. And I'm like, and this is why I said it out loud because there's always <laughs> at least one person in the room yeah. who knows exactly what I'm talking about. Well, and I'm also... I'm a firm believer in mental illness is not your fault, but it's not your responsibility. I'm quoting a wildly inappropriate podcast that I shouldn't mention. I listened to on this one. <laughs> um, I have a responsibility if something's going on with me that I need to tell people. Yes. Um, and the place that my husband and I have found that we are so blessed to be a part of the church we attend is we've never felt judged by our church, our personal church leaders in reaching out. And even if they don't know what to do, I mean, there, there is a time I'm remembering specific, a specific time that my husband um, called one of the pastors and it was like a Saturday afternoon and just said, I, I don't know what to do. And the pastor said, well, I don't either, but I um, will see who's available and just show up at church and someone will just read the Bible with you. 
and they sat for an hour and just read the scripture together and prayed. And he came home and was like, I didn't know we could do that. <laughs> like, yes, we, we can reach out for help. Um, and I mean, that was how I was connected to, um, a therapist, as I said earlier, was I reached out to church for help because I didn't know what to do. And, um, yeah, I have, um, struggled with chronic pain in, um, the past. And I found that having an open book policy is the only way you're going to get results. Mm -hmm. And now I don't mean you don't need to get into like details, but you know, if someone asks me if I'm okay and I'm not okay, I'm not going to say I am. Yeah. And sorry if it's uncomfortable for someone who maybe doesn't know me super well and just says like, Hey, how's it going? I'm just like, Oh, it's not good today. Yeah. <laughs> and that poor person's like, Oh, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> yeah. it, you know, it, it teaches the lesson. Don't ask that kind of question unless you really want an answer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So in, in thinking about how to deal with people with chronic suffering for, for whatever reason, and dealing particularly with suicide, two thoughts come to mind. One, there needs to be a, we have to create a safe space where people can, can say that. I was creating safe spaces just by virtue of, I'm going to say this out loud and people are going to learn how to deal with it. Um, so that was kind of like, kind of like me kicking open the door and saying, hey, we can talk about this and it's okay. Being in a place where apparently someone else has already done that work. So if I'm like, yep, I am struggling, I get a cut here, go talk to this therapist. Um, or you can, you can reach out to the therapist during after church on Sunday because they'll be here. Mm -hmm. but that's, that's quite the safe space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to be in and uh, I oh, in thinking about these things I always think about Job Job and his three friends Job is suffering his health has deteriorated he's lost family material possessions and his three friends come to him and they can see from a distance that they know something is before they even speak to him, they know something's wrong. And so they come and they sit with him in silence. Mm -hmm. They don't try to make it better. They don't try to say anything to, to, to help take away the pain. They just sit with him and endure and experience him experiencing his suffering. And that, that always gets me <laughs> when I read that passage. In a, it's the end of the second chapter of Job. That they took their time. First, they took time to go look for him. Second, when they found him, they sat with him. And they, they, they weren't experiencing his pain, but they were experiencing him experiencing his pain. And they were they were there as a as a comforting presence to be with him. They didn't shy away from him. They didn't try to avoid him because he was ill. They just showed up and they stayed there with him. 
And that always struck me as an example about of how Christians can serve each other, can love each other when someone is suffering. Particularly when someone is is dealing with suicidal ideation. There, and you mentioned it at the outset, there needs to be the quality of relationship where you can tell that something is off without the other person having to say anything. And so it's, it's important for us to develop those kinds of relationships where we can tell and two, where we are comfortable sitting with that person and dwelling with that person in their suffering. Yeah, and that's where the structure of fellowship within a church can be such a huge, important role in a churchgoer's life. Um, but it can also, you know, that has the potential of kind of going sideways. Mm. Um, so there's an element of trust in who, and I guess discernment, um, in who kind of God places around you for fellowship, um, because those are the people that are going to be there for the bad things, as well as, you know, the fun things, the hanging out and um, getting dinner together when you're not in a pandemic and things like that. <laughs> um, but, you know, the the importance of the discernment of who's around you while you're fellowshipping with people. And um, yeah, I think that's another great thing to pray for. Um, you know, the summer we lost my father, there were certain people that I was much more comfortable approaching. I, I never felt like I couldn't approach people, but I, I, I kind of felt um, a sense of discernment and who, who I could be a little bit more open with. Um, and I don't think that's of me um, because like I said, I'm an, op- I'm a brutally honest open book. So <laughs> um, yeah. So the idea of the structure of fellowship um, I think we are very lucky so far in what I've seen with our personal church, but I can very much see how that can go sideways and um, how the greater American church at large, it's, it's easier for the fun things. And um, Mm -hmm. yeah, they perhaps don't have the structures in place for the hard things. Um, And that's why, because it's easier to say, well, read the Bible and it'll be better. Mm -hmm. Um, that is an easier thing to say than to dig in and deal with the, the hard with the people around you. Yes. Mm-hmm. And even when the Bible records the struggles of well, the, the, the people in the Bible, we somehow that there's this disconnect where we, we miss the fact that so many of the, the patriarchs and the prophets and the judges they had hard lives. They lost friends. They lost family members. They were pariahs in their society. They were constantly at war on facing death. Some of them did die rather grisly deaths. That's all in there. And God talks us through how we experience that, how he's, he's there with us through that. And somehow we miss that message. <laughs> well, there's a, there's the phrase, um, toxic positivity. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, it's so easy to fake positivity and, um, you know, when that's not what's needed 
that just it's disingenuous and it's all around dismissive Mm -hmm. I would say to just you know look at all of those really difficult stories in the Bible and if the person who's trying to help says but they got through it and it's great okay thanks Mm. (laughs) yeah don't do that I once had a person ask me um and they were they were asking really earnestly I thought it was sort of a thoughtful question I said so you guys are dealing with infertility and you're trying to adopt how does it feel when you read all these bible stories where every time someone's infertile God makes them have a baby (laughs) it's like yeah well the reason they got stories written about them was because that was really unusual and a miracle all the other infertile women didn't get stories about them they just lived their lives and they didn't have children right we hear about the ones where something dramatic happened and so i know they were there but i i don't you know i don't know who they were because we don't really get to hear very much about them um but it's sort of striking you know who gets which stories end up in the scriptures that we know about and um what we can learn from them and what we can also infer uh, similarly to anyone that didn't get close enough to Jesus to be able to ask him to heal them. Um, there, there are always, there are always others and we know what God's capable of. And he teaches us about his character and who he is through those, um, through those, um, accounts of what he's done for his people and for individual people. And it's, in that sense, it gives us hope, but I think the promises are much broader. They're not sort of like, well, when, I don't know, Abraham and Sarah wanted a baby, then they eventually, God gave them one. Uh, I don't take that as a story that says that's what God's always going to do, but I take it as a story that um, God's way will be, will prevail. He will do what he will do. Um, I wanted to mention something because we are the um, radical traditional feminists. Um, I wanted to bring in the feminist piece a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is uh, in our church and in a lot of churches, most of the formal leadership is male. Mm. Um, and so one way that maybe we should think about addressing mental health within the church is thinking about what female lay leadership would look like for being a support in place for women dealing with mental illness in cases where those kinds of challenges they're facing just aren't best shared with men um, as their counselors or advisors, even as spiritual advisors. Um, And I wonder if that's sort of just extending the model of uh, when you go to the pastor, uh, the pastor sends you to a particular person, what would it look like if there were actually existing groups of women who have volunteered to be on a list yeah um if a if a woman is struggling with anxiety these five women would be happy to talk with them or meet Mm -hmm. with them Mm -hmm. um what would it look like for us to make sure that there's always um women available to do the discipling or the prayer or the just sitting with a person Um, and making sure that that's something that doesn't fall through the cracks um, because it's not a formal leader within the church. 
Yeah, because my policy of just making everybody wildly uncomfortable because I don't care what I say to them is not great for everyone. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's, you know, I, I'm not going to sit down and discuss the, the uh, physiological and neurological symptoms of my perimenopause with just <laughs> anyone. <laughs> and just in case you didn't know before, um, ladies and any gentlemen who have ladies in your lives, yes, the process of going through menopause can break your brain, especially if you've dealt with depression and anxiety before. So be aware, of, be aware of that because I wasn't aware of it. And I couldn't understand why I all of a sudden hit a wall and everything completely stopped for me. My motivation was gone. I just like stopped getting out of bed, all that fun stuff. You know, at the very least, there should be a list of women who would be willing to talk about that because literally every woman over a particular age has been through it. Yes, <laughs> so yes. this is, it should not be hard to find that support. That should be, that should be the first, you know, thing that you can check off the list. Is there a list of women who would be willing to support other women while they're going through menopause? Yes. Mm -hmm. There has and to be. You will yeah. talk Somebody to has younger to women about loud, that it's a thing. <laughs> yes. And who will talk to younger women about, okay, these are the possibilities. So keep an eye out. Mm -hmm. I didn't have yeah. I didn't have anyone to tell me that. I was away at college as my mom was going through menopause. Apparently we mm -hmm. go through it early in my family. So I didn't have a clue. <laughs> I will say I have feel like I felt before um, that I have almost forced leadership's hand in, you know, if these things aren't set up through the church, I'm going to kind of make you listen to me about it. And I don't think you really want to hear about, you know, what's causing a lot of my chronic pain and why a hysterectomy saved me, mm. but <laughs> I have nowhere else to go. I have nowhere. I don't feel, I don't know what else to do. So uh, <laughs> yeah. you're yeah. the guy now <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's my approach to destigmatizing issues mm -hmm. of mental health and mental illness I'll go anywhere and talk to anyone about it I believe this may be my third podcast episode this week where I'm talking about <laughs> mental health and mental illness I, I do another podcast called Life Fantastic Exploring Disabilities where we have talked several times about mental health and mental illness because people don't talk about it enough. Mm -hmm. It's for something that affects so many people so often in our lives, it shouldn't be such a secret. We shouldn't be afraid to talk about it. The church especially should be all up in that doing that whole love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. And, and just to circle back to where we started, the perception is if you're struggling with mental illness, it's because you're not strong enough in your faith hmm. and that needs to stop. That's what needs, I think within the church itself, that's the portion that needs the biggest, um, biggest amount of time to be destigmatized. That is what needs to be focused on. And once that issue is is off the table, 
then we've got a lot more work to do within the church um, to build people up who've got mental illness. Several years ago, I, I was in a women's Bible study and we, we studied hymns and not just any hymns. They were hymns of grief and sorrow. Hymns that the hymn writers had, had written as they were going through struggles in their lives, as they were losing family members, as they were dealing with deep depression, going through war, living with disabilities in like the 17, 1800s. And they chose to, out of that pain and sorrow, write these beautiful hymns that are sung in churches all over the world. And doing that study really helped me understand that having a mental illness is not a reflection of your character. It's not a reflection of the health of your relationship with God. It's not a reflection of the strength of your faith. It's the mm -hmm. reflection of the fact that you're human. <laughs> and the human brain is subject to going haywire for whatever, for whatever biological and sometimes spiritual reason. But even if there is this, when there's a spiritual component, again, it's not a reflection of our character. It is a reflection of this is the world that we live in. It's a mess. And there should be no expectation that anyone is going to be perfect at anything. And you know that building that realization in people, I think could also be so, um, so freeing as we think of, um, of how to think about other things people are struggling with, which might be coping strategies. Mm -hmm. So say someone's struggling with substance abuse, maybe, or maybe we would have previously thought of that as a behavior problem. But if we understand mental illness and we understand the notion of self-medicating, all of a sudden we can actually help someone and get to the root of what's going on and try to actually be supportive of why, why does life feels so hard that that this is how you're reacting to it right like what what is it that we can do on the front end to make this better rather than uh, thinking of it as a behavioral problem that needs to be fixed with a behavioral solution and i think what's what's incredibly important again is not just looking at the behavior but kind of going around the backside and looking at what's behind it mm -hmm. Because we've seen time and time again the, uh, the the really sketchy results that come from just looking at a behavior and and treating it as if the behavior the, is the only thing that's there. You're right that a lot of addiction stems from self-medicating to relieve emotional distress and emotional pain, overeating self-medicating mm -hmm. i self-medicate with food i eat my i eat my feelings i'm aware of this and you know there are times where i'm like why am i in the kitchen i'm not hungry i'm sad <laughs> get mm. out of the kitchen <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's 
we have to think carefully about these things and recognize that there are deep emotional wounds that, that people are trying to fix. And the church should be the place where we go to have those wounds recognized and healed. Mm. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for listening to the Radical Traditional Feminist Podcast. I'm your host, the Idea Diagnosis, Matt Pierce, and I was joined today by my fellow weird sisters, Sarah Hammersma and Nikki Park. We look forward to chatting again next time.